So uh, we've been in a teaching for, man, this is the 10th week in our teaching um, in the Gospel of Mark, the essential Gospel of Mark, uh, the mystery of Mark. Jesus says, uh, this, this mystery you've been given to know, the mystery of the kingdom you've been given to know. And so we've spent the last 10 weeks talking about this mystery. Uh, the last couple of weeks, Jesus has been dismantling the temple, the the, what's been happening at the temple and the, their ideas of faith and religion and what those things really are. If you remember last week, we talked about a fig tree and Jesus curses it and he turns over tables in the temple and he realizes, oh man, their whole idea of what this, what this thing is, what faith is and what belief in God and how it's supposed to represent itself. It's, it's been totally sideways and upside down. And Jesus pulls everything back around. Remember uh, last week, he says, you know, have faith in God. Pray like you mean it. Pray with, pray with belief. Pray with incredible trust that God already knows exactly everything you need. And forgive others. This week, we're going to fast forward a little bit to Mark chapter 13. <clears throat> have any of you ever read Mark chapter 13? Don't just say it because... Preacher asking, everybody's looking. Um, <clears throat> um, couple of a uh, couple of ideas, couple of bedrock ideas before we get started in today's teaching. Mark chapter thirteen may be the most difficult chapter in the New Testament. Um, I have my serious work cut out for me today. Um, it is incredibly, incredibly difficult for, for a couple of reasons. One is Mark chapter 13 is maybe the most Jewish chapter in the New Testament. It is filled with all sorts of um, uh, Jewish prophecy, prophecy and imagery. It's deeply rooted in, in, a, in, a, in a Jewish mindset. Uh, it is set in um, uh, Mark chapter 13 is a, a, a genre of literature in the Bible. So in the Bible, there's all different kinds of writings. There, there's letters and there are historical writings and there's gospel writings. And, uh, there's poetry and songs and all of this. And Mark chapter 13 falls into the apocalyptic genre, uh, which sounds really exciting. You're all like, oh, Merry Christmas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> apocalyptic genre. Uh, and... and uh, apocalyptic genre comes with it with its own kind of kind of set of rules. You don't read it like you would read a historical writing. Does that make sense? And and it's kind of sort of closer to to the poetry side of things. And, and so you yeah you just look at it and read it differently. And uh, and that means that um, everything we talk about today out of Mark chapter thirteen, I won't be able to explain. In fact, if you you will likely leave today with more questions than answers, and there's times I mean I'd love for you to come and you know you want to knock on my door, we can sit down and have coffee and talk about it more. But I can't guarantee you that there honestly there's stuff in this that that I just don't get. I don't understand. Um, maybe we're not supposed to understand, maybe even in this apocalyptic genre, if you, if you try to explain it down to its core truth, then you miss the whole thing. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? It's kind of written, written with this kind of idea, um, like, a, like describing a dream. And Jesus in, uh, in Mark chapter 13 is going to use this, uh, this apocalyptic dream imagery. He's going to going to revert to this Jewish style, this Jewish genre of writing to talk about the future. But which future? 
So uh, to help us kind of set the stage, I need to do a couple of things. First is I need to set up a timeline. So when you read Mark chapter 13, you, you need to think in terms of a timeline. And so to help you do that, I got a couple of visuals. Imagine the whole front of our stage is, is a timeline, okay? So over here somewhere is Genesis in the beginning, right? Got it? And over here is down the road from that place. So if Genesis is on this side, right here represents in our timeline of the stage is the, is the great B.C. A.D. Uh, changeover. You know where that happened with Jesus' birth and all that kind of stuff. And I wrote B.C.E. or C.E. for those of you that like to use that. You know they changed it. It's not A.D. B.C. anymore. It's before Common Era and Common Era because heavens, we can't let people know that time is built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Um, so <clears throat> they changed that. Um, so that's where uh, Jesus' birth is, right around here, somewhere in our timeline. And then we have AD 30, 33, which is the ministry of Jesus, where most of our the stories, the gospels, the writings we have come from his teachings. And then we have about, I'm going to move some of these. This is a little bit later. A.D. 70, the destruction of the temple, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But basically, the Romans and Titus and the Jews and Christians have a whole, they, they just have it out, and this incredible temple of God gets destroyed. It's an important date. And Mark's gospel is written right about here, we think, about 68 A.D., um, so right before the destruction of the temple, but more than about 40 years after Jesus' death and his teaching. You got it? Are you with me so far? All right, a couple more dates in our timeline. This is today. We need to have this date, A.D., November 29th. 2015, this date fits in this timeline, right? And then we also have one final one in the timeline. And I'll set it way over here. It's AD, I don't know. And uh, it is Advent or the second coming, right? So we are Christians. We read the New Testament. We believe in this idea that Jesus came, right, down here, and at some point in history, he is what? Coming again. And so today is November 29th, four Sundays before um, Christmas, is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a season of expectation. Advent literally means arrival. So somewhere after today, or maybe later today, I don't know. There will be this moment, right? Are you with me? Uh, in fact, we have our Advent candles, and uh, Jeremiah, would you mind go ahead and, oh, you put it over here. You're so thoughtful. So for each, yeah, for each Sunday prior to Christmas, we, ride a, we light a candle as a kind of looking forward, as a kind of way of anticipation and expectation. Okay, so you got a timeline in your head. 
You see this? The stage is our timeline. We have all these different events. When Jesus' teaching is right here at that one, at AD 30 through 33, somewhere in there, Jesus is giving this teaching to Peter, who is, record, uh, who is delivering it to Mark, and Mark is the one who wrote it down, and we're looking back at it now. Okay, as he is giving this teaching in Mark chapter 13, one final thing for you to know before we get into this, Jesus is going to talk about different events in the future, right? And I think he even talks about a little bit in the past. And he uses different phrases to identify different events. Uh, so two of the phrases he uses are these things and those days, all right? So we're going we're gonna to make a distinction between these things and those days as we look at Mark chapter 13. And if you brought your Bibles, you can follow along. We're going to read all of this. I can't possibly address all of it, but uh, we're going to dive in it together. Are you ready? Are you excited? You should be. This is going to be good. First four verses of Mark chapter 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of the disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones on the walls. And Jesus replied, yeah, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that, what's the words? These things are about to be fulfilled. Okay, go ahead and go to that next slide. All right, so this is a model replica of what the temple would have looked like. Uh, and, and you have no idea. I mean, I, I can't even comprehend what, th what this place had to have looked like. So the temple at, at this date, when Jesus is there giving his teaching, is almost completed. And they've been working on it for 50 years. It is the most impressive structure the world has ever seen up to this point. It is not one of the wonders of the world. It is the wonder of the world. The courtyard you see is 35 um, acres, 35 football fields. To build the temple, they leveled, they, they took the a top of a mountain and cut the top off and put a temple there. It was the most impressive structure ever built to this point. The, the stones they used around the top were glistening white. And I don't know if you can see kind of in the middle of the holy place and the holy of holies. It's all gilded around the top. It was gold. And so it looked like a snow-peaked mountaintop with gold on the top. It was massive. One of the most massive structures ever built. I want to talk to you about the stones. This is one of the stones that's in the temple wall. You can go see it even today. This stone is one of the largest stones. It's over 60 feet long. It is 15 feet deep and 11 feet tall. It weighs more than a million pounds. And it was these stones that Jesus and the disciples are walking out. They're walking out of the temple, and the disciples are going, whoa, this place is awesome. And they're walking by, Jesus, look at these stones. How in the heck did they even get a stone that big in here? 
And Jesus looks at the stones and says, Meh. All of this is going to be destroyed. He said, even fa- in fact, he said, not one stone is going to be left standing on another. Now you're looking at a picture, well, there's stones standing on top of it. Don't get too literal, okay? It's going to be destroyed. And then they leave the temple and they're on the hillside looking across at the temple. So kind of that first picture I showed you, you know, everyone can see the temple from a long ways away. They're looking at the temple and they're thinking about Jesus. You said, this, how can this be destroyed? What are you talking about? This is, when's this going to happen? How and when? These are questions that, that, that we can relate to. You see, for the Jews, for the disciples, man, this, the temple was it, right? Um, there was nothing more. There, there wasn't a greater symbol in the world of power, of, of authority, of longevity, right? Even if you wanted to, to destroy it, how could you, Right? It was a source of incredible security and faith, lasting and true and solid and unshakable. And Jesus said, it's not going to be around much longer. If you look carefully, you know, in these last couple of chapters, Jesus has been deconstructing their ideas of the temple almost as if they had put so much faith in the temple that they had missed what's really important, right? Lots of misunderstanding happening in Mark. Jesus will even talk later about, he said, you know, look at these stones. Look how massive and big and powerful and lasting it is. And Jesus says, you know, that's, That's really not impressive because they missed the cornerstone talking about himself, right? Look, you can have all this. You can place your trust in all of this. You can place your trust in wealth and your own ability to create wealth. You can place your trust in the stock market or you can place your trust in all of these kind of things. And none of that is going to last. There is only one thing that you can place your trust in, that will endure. There's only one thing that you can place your trust in, and that is the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter how big and how impressive and how lasting it looks. Are you with me? And so they say, Jesus, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? And I think when it says in Mark, these things, I think it's talking about this event right here. All right? This is the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Uh, um, The Romans led by Titus, the Jews and Christians are going to have a huge revolt. They're going to have a huge fight. And Titus, the Roman emperor at the time, is going to lead armies into Jerusalem. And they are going to dismantle the entire temple stone by stone. And everything you saw, no matter how beautiful and majestic and powerful and lasting it is, is going to be brought to the ground. And Jesus is saying, told you. And when Mark is writing, the tension is right there, but it hasn't happened yet. You see what I'm saying? And so when the readers of Mark are first reading this, they're seeing 
this right here. This is what they're thinking about. And when Jesus says these things, this is what he is talking about, the destruction of the temple. Look what he says in the next couple of verses. In 5 through 8, he says, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yet, yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes. And I think about the the REM song, it's the end of the world as we know it. Anyway, um, there will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pains. More will come. He says he's, he's prophesying about these days. But even in the midst of kingdoms at wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and all this kind of stuff, what's his message right in the middle? When these things happen, he says right in the middle, he says, don't panic. Okay, that's counterintuitive, right? <laughs> Like, no, of course I'm going to panic. And then he goes on in verses 9 through 13, talking about these things. He says, when these things begin to happen, watch out. This is a, this is a huge theme in, in all of this chapter, this idea of watch out, watch out, watch out. Jesus is going to repeat it again and again. He says, watch out. When these things happen, you will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. That's exactly what happens. The Christians are rounded up by the Jews. They're beaten and flogged. And it says, you will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. Man, where is God's heart? Where's God's focus all the time? God's focus all the time, man, is about getting this message out. He says in verse 10, for the good news must first be preached to all the nations. God always has this focus on others. God always has this focus on those who don't know him. God is always, even in the midst of of pain and trial and struggle and suffering, um, his focus is on those who don't know him. He's he's never forgotten about people who don't know him. He loves you. Man, I'm so thankful that you've given your life to him. But he's never taken his eyes off those who don't. Verse 11, it says, But when you are arrested and stand trial, not if, when, what's he say? Don't worry. Don't worry in advance about what to to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it it, it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. Father will betray his own child. Children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will, what are those two words? Hate you because you are my followers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You're going to stand trial. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be rejected all because you're my followers. But this will be your chance to tell them about me. Like, it's just an incredible way of thinking, right? Don't worry. You don't even have to worry about what you're going to say. Well, what do I say to my, what do I say to my, my non-Christian friends? What do I say to my friends that, that don't have a faith or, or aren't believers? Don't worry. Just go talk to them. The Holy Spirit, God, God's already been thinking about them. He's going to give you these words. You're going to be able to speak. 
And in this, it addresses this, uh, an idea that's kind of prevalent in, in our North American Christianity kind of idea, and that is that if I'm a Christian, if I'm a follower of Christ, then I'll never have any kind of suffering or pain. You ever get this sometimes? Like we, like sometimes Christians, oh man, uh, sometimes I, I meet with Christians and, and they, there's some sort of struggle or some sort of trial that they're facing and, and, and it's like, why has God abandoned me? I'm like, no, that's, there, this, you were never promised, you know, a, a Disney fairy tale existence when you gave your life to Christ. That's not what this is about. That, um, it's it's going to happen. If you're giving your life to Christ, man, you're going to face struggles. You're going to face trials. You're going to face it, man. It's 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 come it's not an if, it's a it's a win. And man, there's times I just want to take some some of you guys, some some Christians I know, just shake them say, "Come on. You can do this." It is in struggle that we are supposed to shine that our light is supposed to shine the brightest. Can I get an amen? It is in trial that Christians get to point to God most clearly, right? That it, what greater witness do you have than you, to your friends and neighbors than in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your pain, you point to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? You don't have a better witness than that. And Jesus says, or, or Peter will say later in, uh, in First and Second Peter, which you should definitely read as kind of a counterpart to this chapter. Peter says, when you suffer, rejoice, because you get to share in the suffering of Jesus Christ. Peter seems to think that when you suffer for Christ, that honors Christ. So be strong, be Joshua, be strong, be courageous. Endure, right? Isn't that what he says? Endure. The one who endures will be saved. And so Jesus says, these things are coming. Times of persecution, times when, um, almost an idea of uh, when Christianity won't be popular anymore. Right? Maybe something applies to our life. When, when Christianity begins to become separated from our, our, our national Americanism, Right? Because forever we've, our, our country's looked at those two things as the same, right? But now are they the same? Are they becoming more and more spread apart? And I know you hate it and I hate it too because I, I but our cause is this one. And even if it causes us hate and even if it causes us suffering or difficulty, this is our cause, the cause of Christ that we're supposed to endure and stand up. And he says, man, it's going to come. I, I don't know if it's been a while. Maybe you, maybe you haven't faced it, but it's definitely coming. And I think he's talking to them about this day and this moment. And then he's going to make a shift, and things are about to get fuzzy. Let's look at verses 14 through 20. The day, all right, so I think the day is potentially different from these things. I think when he says the day, he is talking about that day. All right? So just to give us a reminder where we're at, Jesus is there teaching about here, but he's also teaching about here. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish. It's hard to pull them apart, right? But I, but I think when he says that day, he's talking about something else. He says in verse 14, he says, the day, that day is coming 
when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he should not be. And then Mark, as the, as the author of this, takes a side note and says, man, reader, pay attention to this. Um, literally, it is the abomination that causes desecration. Isn't that a great Christmas, like, post-Thanksgiving uh, teaching? Uh, I totally want to throw in an Iron Bowl joke in there, but I'm, I'm just going to hold back. Um, the abomination that causes desecration will be standing where it should not be. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. Uh, and so it's going to get a little dark here, just warning you. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it would be for pregnant women and for nursing mother in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter, for there will be greater anguish in those days. So now I'm kind of like, oh, is this those days or is this those days? Is it, is it both for there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens the time of calamity, so unless, unless God shortens this time, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of the chosen ones, he has shortened those days. All right, so I admit to you, this is a, this is a confusing section because I think he is talking about this day but he's also kind of referencing these days and he's using imagery actually from a day that happened way, 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 even before the big uh, AD, BC changeover. There was a day that happened here. Uh, maybe you've heard the stories of the Maccabees. You guys, I know you're not Jewish from either. Um, anyway, um, or I don't know how many of you have a Catholic background. Anyway, Maccabees. Um, there was another time way back here that the temple was destroyed, this time by a Greek named Antiochus, all right? And Antiochus marched into the temple. He actually, um, instead of killing all the Jews in the temple, he just set up a barricade around them and starved them all to death. So all of the Jews retreated to the temple for safety and security. They didn't flee to the hills. They went to the temple and said, oh, surely he won't kill us here. And Antiochus starved them out. And there's horrible, horrible, horrible stories about um, mothers boiling their own children to eat them. Like pretty dark stuff. And so when Jesus talks about there'll be anguish, like there's never been anguish before, it's, it's almost like he's talking about those days. And when he talks about this, this object of abomination that causes desolation, one of the things Antiochus did after all the Jews had died from starvation, he went into the temple and where the altar was, he erected a giant statue of Zeus. Object of abomination that causes desolation in the temple. So you see Jesus is pulling from all of these different images uh, and I'll let you, you tell me where they belong, but they all, they all fit in here somehow. And the next couple of verses in 21 through 23 says, then if anyone tells you, look, here's the Messiah, oh, there he is, don't believe it. All right, we have records of this. This is a historical account. Many people after Jesus came and said, I'm the Messiah. They even were able to do things and perform signs and wonders. And Jesus says, for false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. And so what's his message to us again? Watch out. I've warned you about this ahead of time. Let's keep going. This is all going somewhere. Right? You guys are doing great. Stay with me. At that time, 
after the anguish of those days. So I think he's talking about after this time. I, now he's, he's definitely, in my mind, pointing towards this event up here. All right? Are you, are you staying with me? He's pointing to this second coming event. Look what he says. The sun will be darkened. The moon will give no light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. All right, so now we know what day he's talking about for sure, right? Like this is that day. This is the second coming. And he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. This is an important moment. He talks about the, the sun being, being darkened and the, the stars falling from the sky. The powers will be shaken. And I, and I think uh, this is kind of a reference um, similar to the disciples' reference about the stones and the longevity and trust and, and steadfastness. Jesus says, you know, Nothing and no one can compete with the glory and majesty of God. When he comes, even the sun's going to look dark. Are you with me? Like the all of nature and all the power of nature and everything that's in nature pales in comparison to God. Not only does the temple, the awesome majestic temple pale in comparison to God and his glory and his power and his strength and his trustworthiness, but so does all of nature. And everyone, I love verse 26 says, everyone will see the son of man coming. When it comes, you're going to know it. Are you with me? Like um, there, there ain't going to be any question. You know, somebody, well, is this the, is this the end times? Is this last day? No, you're going to know. We're going to know. Whether you know Christ or not, you're going to know this is the moment. And then he kind of jumps back again, verses 28 through 31. And, and I think he's still talking about this time. He says, now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. All right, so this is that super confusing verse. Um, because um, that if he's talking about this moment, this generation, this generation right here has already passed away, right? They didn't see that. But if he's talking about this moment, then this generation is still here, right? So I think he's kind of sort of talking about both. It's like you're not going to be able to see. I'm telling you about it, but you're not going to be able to, to see or predict. And then he says, to add great clarity to everything, in verse 31, heaven and earth will disappear, but my word will never disappear. Let's keep going. This is all going somewhere, I promise. We're, we're almost done. Um, so he says, watch the fig tree, pay attention. When you see these signs, you'll be able to know when it's coming. And then he says in verse 32, he says, however, I love when Jesus does that. However, no one knows. No one knows. 
No one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, what's his message to us? Be on guard. Stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. Now, this is the Jesus we know who teaches in parables, right? When the, when the man leaves, left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do, and he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. That moment, right? And he says, you too must keep watch, for you don't know when the master of the household will return. In the evening, at midnight, before dawn or daybreak, don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning, I say to you what I say to everyone, watch for him. Super easy chapter, right? <laughs> you guys got all that? Very clear as, uh, clear as mud. Um, just leave that one up there for a second, Rob. Um, I'm going to try to make some sense of this. So in, in the midst of this moment and this moment and this moment, there is a message for us in this moment. Here, now, and today. And the message comes in a couple of different ways. And there, there's so much of this, but a couple of things that really stood out to me is, number one, first and foremost, there will be a this moment And the whole season of Advent that we entered into, we lit a candle today, is for us to again turn our minds towards this moment. Because how many of us live only in this moment with no consciousness of this one? You see, in the Jewish mind, the idea of the second coming, the coming of the Messiah was front and foremost. It's what they prayed for. It's what they asked for. Every single prayer included a prayer for the return. But our Christians, Christians today, we, we've lost this, right? Haven't we? We've lost this hope and this expectation. We, we've lost the yearning and, and, and the excitement of the coming. We've kind of like, even in 1 Thessalonians, he talks about, well, people will say, where is it at? When's it never going to come? And, and um, the author of 1 Thessalonians says, man, stay with it. Don't lose this idea. There will be a second coming. And, and, and I don't know if this second coming will be right here. I don't know if it'll be way over there. And I don't know if it will be right here. And that's the second message. This is coming, but it's not our job to speculate when or how. All right, I want to be really clear about this. I don't care what the Mayans say. I don't care what um, Confucius or Nostradamus or the Discovery Channel decoding the Bible where they take all the letters and put numbers on them and come up with a date. I don't care what any of that says, right? 
It's not our job to speculate. It's not even our job to try to read the signs. It's not our job to try and forecast. That is a waste of time. The scripture says, the angels in heaven don't know. And Jesus says, even the Son of Man doesn't know. Jesus says, if I don't know, you don't know. And that totally messes with my whole idea about God. So how does God know something that Jesus doesn't know? I don't know. I don't know. But that's what Jesus says, right? So don't waste time speculating. Instead, I think our job in this gap right here is to watch for him. Advent means arrival. Means expectation. And it's filled with all this hope and yearning. Um, There is a part of this day that involves all of the darkest, scariest images of the Bible. Um, uh, Advent is a really nice word, but it's sometimes called second coming. Sometimes it's called the end of the world. It's called the apocalypse. It's called the day of desolation, right? It is called the, the great Terminator movie, remember? Judgment Day. And I don't want to deny this point, and this is, this is the truth. This is a day of judgment. Matthew chapter 25 talks about the separation of the sheep and goats. It will be a day where those who believe in Christ and have given their life to Christ and accepted the blood of Jesus Christ in their life will be separated from those who haven't. But I think there's something important for us to know and something you need to remember that ultimately God's desire is to bring everyone back to him. And and you can read all the dark and scary images you want out of the Bible, even in the Old Testament, even in the prophets. The whole story of the Bible is a story of restoration, It is a story of return. It is a story begging every person to repent. Even God has not turned his eyes. What did he say? You'll teach these words to the nations. He hasn't turned his back on these people, but wants all nations to come to him. I told uh, our Advent class this morning, I said, um, I threaten Canon with spanking sometimes. Um. And when I tell him, Ken, if you do that again, I'm going to spank you, I actually mean that. Now, and, and God help me, I will. Like, and he knows that I will. But that's different from what I want. Right? So God says this moment of judgment is coming But the whole gospel, the whole scripture, the whole good news of Jesus Christ proclaims something completely different. It proclaims exactly what God wants. Look, I I know you know John 3.16, right? We've all seen it in the football games. For God so loved the world so much that, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But what about John 3.17? Do you remember this one? God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save it through himself. 
The whole Bible is a story of return. It's a story of redemption where God is begging for his children to return to him. It is a rescue mission from the very first pages. It's not a story of destruction, but a story of restoration. Now, um, we know this day is coming. We know we're supposed to watch for him. I think, and if you really look carefully at Scripture, I think you will see this is a day not to fear, but a day for us to look forward to. Uh, I think if you talk to most of your friends, even Christians, if you ask them, well, what, do you, what are your feelings about Judgment Day? It's, man, I'm terrified. I'm scared to death. I don't know what God's going to say. Even, even men and women who've given their life to Christ in baptism and trust Him and, and prayed for forgiveness of Jesus, are, we, we still are afraid. And I think that demonstrates we, we really don't understand what God did, to, get, did for us through Jesus Christ, Right? Because those of us who have given our life to Christ, we have no reason to fear. For us, this day is a day of jubilation. For us, this is a day of, of celebration and comfort and joy. It's a day for us to look forward to. I don't think uh, for Christians, this is a day we are meant to be scared. I think this is a day for which we are to be prepared. When Jesus says to watch for him, I don't think that just means passively sitting on your porch in your rocking chair, but I think we watch for him by participating in the kind of life he said was possible, by being generous, right? By serving others at GraceWorks or, or uh, by volunteering in the children's ministry or, or paying attention to the needs of your neighbor. We hasten in the day of our Lord. First Peter talks about, um, in terms of preparation, how we can watch for him. He says, get rid of evil and think clearly. Exercise self-control. Maybe the way we watch for him is to put our trust in him and him alone. We don't put our trust in the stones of the temple, right? Maybe the way we watch for him is by not putting our trust in the things of this world, but putting our trust in him and him alone. When things get difficult, there's only one cornerstone. There is only one in whom we can rely. And, and First Peter takes it to this whole other level. So don't put your, your faith in the stones of this world. Put your faith in the stones of Jesus Christ. And then First Peter takes it to this whole other level and says, You are living stones that God is building into a whole new temple. Isn't that something? So maybe for us as Christians today, we place our, our values not on consumerism or pride or greed or all of these other things, but we choose to value charity, deep love towards God and others. We place supreme value on grace, on prayer, on a believing faith. We practice a, a meaningful kind of forgiveness for those around us, for those that have sinned against us. If we fill our life with these things on this day, 
The master won't find us asleep, but awake, waiting for him. So in just a moment, we're going to take communion, and I know that was a really long teaching. Thanks for uh, enduring. In just a moment, we're going to take communion, and this is a great, great time for maybe you to just examine the stones in your life. What are the things you, are you what, what are the things in your life that you're putting your trust in and your faith in? Are they the cornerstone Jesus Christ? Maybe it's a time to just really reflect and ask yourself, "Em, what do I think about this day?" And when I think about this day, what does that make me feel? Am I worried? Am I afraid? What's what's making me worried? Do I really know if I really embraced what Jesus came and offered? And maybe you don't have a faith at all, and so this is our moment just to plead with you. Man, we, um, we want you to give your life to Christ. Not, not just in, a, in, a, in word, but, but in, in the deepest way imaginable. Give your life to Christ in, in a way that says, every decision I make from this point forward, Father God, is a decision looking towards this day is a decision out of what I know is true, that you love me and you gave your one and only son for me. Man, that's the kind of life we want to invite you into today. So in just a moment, I'm going to say a prayer and uh, invite you to a time of communion, a time of reflection. Maybe share with others. and Maybe God's put it on your heart to repent, or if there's a way we can pray for you or serve you, we want to be able to do that. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for for your word. I'm, I'm so overwhelmed by this, and I, I know it was way, way, way too much to, to grasp or fathom, but God, I, somehow I pray that. I pray that your truth and the, your, your spirit was able to speak through this to every heart here. God, you, you know the hearts of this room uh, in, in ways that I, I couldn't possibly ever know. And so, Father God, where there's sin or where there's doubt or where there's fear, God, I pray, I pray that you would replace that with the truth of your word, with Uh, the truth of your son Jesus with the sacrifice that he made for us. And as we take this communion, Father God, let us us enter into something much deeper, something that's that's not just about today, but but something that comes with a fullness, a, a promise of tomorrow, a promise of your son's return. One day, Father God, we aren't just gonna gonna eat the eat the bread and drink the cup and remember him. Father God, we're gonna stand with him shoulder to shoulder, face to face. We're gonna embrace him. Ah, God, help us to look forward to that day. Hasten that day. We love you, Father, and in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says, amen. Stand and enjoy time of communion together, please.